You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, I'm Robert Wright. I run the Non-Zero Foundation, which produces all the shows on Blogging Heads TV and Meaning of Life TV. We host a variety of voices, some of them pretty unorthodox, and we encourage dialogue that is sharp but civil. We think fostering constructive conversation is especially important now that America and the world are looking kind of fragile. If you agree that our mission is important, I hope you'll consider helping us shoulder the cost. You can do that by becoming one of our cherished patrons at patreon.com slash nonzerofoundation. That's N-O-N-Z-E-R-O-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N. Thanks. We need your help and we deeply appreciate it. Hi, everybody in Blogging Heads world. This is Rob Gresses. Uh, I'm doing this dive log today for uh, Meaning of Life TV, for particularly Sophia TV, the philosophy part of Blogging Heads and part of Meaning of Life. My guest today is Jamie Edwards of St. Norbert. Is that correct? That's right. St. Norbert's College in Wisconsin somewhere. So tell me about yourself, Jamie. Um, how long have you been at St. Norbert's? Yeah, so I'm just going into my third year um, as uh-huh. a professor at St. Norbert. And uh-huh. uh, before that, I was finishing my graduate work um, in, in, at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, I was out in California myself. I was, uh, did my undergraduate oh, yeah. work at Berkeley. Oh, cool. So okay. That's, sort of, that's the trajectory, yeah. And your dissertation advisor, at least one of them, was Brian Leiter at the University of Chicago. Was he your main advisor? That's right. Yeah, Brian was really my main advisor. Brian and Dan Brudney, also at the University of Chicago. And then I worked with uh, Martha Nussbaum also um, and uh, Michael Forrester, who's at the University of Bonn in Germany. Okay, great. And we're here talking today about this is how I was going to describe it, because this is how I recall it being described by Brian Leiter. The Micro Foundations of Marxism. Do you like that description of what you work on? Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds good. That's, that's a piece of it. I mean, there's a, uh-huh. lot, there's a lot to Marx, what that, which part that features into, we can get into. But, but that's definitely a, a big and important part of uh, work on Marx, I think, to be done. Yeah. Now, so there's a lot of things that are part of Marxism, classical Marxism or contemporary Marxism, things like the labor theory of value, things like historical materialism, uh, also uh, class consciousness, ideology critique, um, and commodification of value, uh, workers owning the means of production. But I take it you focus on ideology critique and class consciousness, that sort of stuff. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, so, you know, I, uh, Marx is one of those thinkers that, that is an area of Marx that really draws me in. Um, so, uh, there's a lot to Marx. Um, you know, I think of myself really as a reader of political philosophy from Plato to the present. So I'm not, I think my non-Marxist friends think, um, I'm a Marxist and my Marxist friends think I'm not. Uh, so Marx is somebody that I come back to a lot. I like to read. I find him, um, I think he has a good ear for a uh, good eye for problems, whatever the right metaphor is. Uh, I think he has a lot of original, interesting things to say about the different problems he points to. 
Um, and I think he's right a surprising amount of the time, or at least in the right direction. So there's lots, I think there's a lot to Marx that I like. Um, I wouldn't subscribe, I wouldn't, you know, necessarily subscribe to the whole picture. I think Marx himself was somebody who changed his mind and moved around a lot. Um, so there, there's a lot in Marx that I, I find interesting. My, my, uh, dissertation was specifically on ideology. That's a draw, and I'm interested in that strand of thinking from Marx and the way it's developed also in the 20th century with thinkers. But So that's that's a particular draw. But there's other areas of Marx that I like as well. Yeah. But but you when, when you did your dissertation, it wasn't on those other areas, or was it? It was mainly on, like, uh, from what I recall, I read an interview with you for the APA blog. I'll have to include a link to that where you talked about how you wanted to see how cognitive biases, uh, among other kinds of biases, can help to explain how um, ideologies of the dominant class or classes become widespread and become uh, adhered to, not only by the members of those classes, but by members of the classes they oppress as well. Is that, broadly speaking, correct? Yeah, I think that's that's very well said. I think that that captures it. I mean... The, the dissertation itself is uh, sort of a, an articulation and a defense of Marx's whole view of ideology as I see it. So there's, I see this as two pieces. Maybe it's just a step back and say the two pieces, what these are. I mean, um, Marx said a lot of things about ideology. Uh, he didn't always explain thoroughly what he was talking about, and maybe some of his discussions are even inconsistent. Um, but I think there's a through line that's interesting in Marx. Um, on ideology. And it's this, this thought that, to put it schematically, I would say, that um, most of our moral, political, legal thinking is shot through with false beliefs, mm-hmm. first. Second, there's, there's a uh, genetic account of why these beliefs go false. There's something about psychological uh, influences, social circumstances that that undermine the thinkers who are thinking these thoughts in this particular time that leads them astray. And third, this sort of functional component that these false beliefs then serve to, they serve a function basically of supporting and sustaining the interests of a ruling class. So these are three components. They all need a lot more work, right. To be said, I mean, but the, but the idea roughly is, I mean, so to put it maybe less schematically, the idea roughly is that, any of us, any of us, reflecting on the world around us, we're going to have, we're going to sort of have a status quo orientation to our, our thinking. We're going to reflect on the world in a way where we sort of, the way things appear strikes us as the way things are and the way things should be, something like that. And that's going to affect us both as lay theorists, um, you know, just ordinary, us ordinary folks, and professional theorists, those Marx calls ideologists, the, you know, think moral, moral philosophers, legal scholars, social scientists, etc. Um, and th- that sort of, that orientation is going to orient our beliefs in a way that sort of reaffirms the status quo. And to the extent that the status quo is set up such that it sort of favors elites. Um, things that are going to reaffirm that are going to support and sustain those interests. That's what we might call, that's one half of the account, right? That's, that's what I would call the bottom up account. And this is the account where the social psychology, these things are going to be relevant. We can come back to that in a second. The more well-known part of the account 
Um, but I think it's also important. So I'm not saying we should look here, not there. There's a second component. Mark thinks there is, in fact, I, I, we, I would call this the top-down account, I think we can call it that. Um, there's a thought that there is, in fact, something like a ruling class. Um, mm-hmm. And this ruling class has monopolized, essentially, the... Um, the channels through which ideas are circulated in a culture. And this ruling class, through this monopolization, selects among the beliefs that are sort of emerging, those that are most, it supports, it it selects the beliefs that support its interests the best, say. It promotes those, et cetera. So there's sort of a bottom-up and a top-down account, um, and and it's sort of a vicious cycle, epistemologically, right? The, the idea is, even without this top-down stuff, our thinking is going to be sort of directed in a way that reinforces the status quo. Worse still, there's going to be forces that are reinforcing that and then, so, and channeling that back to us, right, in a way. So we're going to get kind of a double thing. We're going to have already just have a psychological uh, propensity to look around the world and and sort of affirm it as it is. And then we're going to be getting this messaging on top of it that's like, and that's good. That's, you know, that's right. That's the way things should be. Um, it's the latter part that gets the most attention um, in, in Marxism. And I think that's, and, it, and again, I think that's crucial. I think that's a really important part. But sometimes in the discussions of ideology, it makes it seem like that would reduce it to just mere propaganda or something. Like the ruling class cooks up these ideas and this is not Marx's view. This is not the interesting part of Marxism. I mean, he thinks that happens, of course, as well. But the more interesting thought is the ideologists tend to be kind of sincere. The people who are reflecting and thinking about this, the, the people in the you know, economics departments or the moral theorists or the theology people that Marx is criticizing, he's not thinking they're like cooking up schemes most of the time. Sometimes they are. But most of the time he thinks they're not like cooking up. They sincerely believe what they're saying. And so the question for Marx is, that's the interesting question in this domain, but under theorized by him, the question is, how could that be the case? How could it be the case that sincere people who are purportedly experts in their relative fields could be theorizing in such a way that sort of systematically leads them astray? Um, that's, that's the thorny question. Um, and that's where an account, that's where Marx... He suggests this, he, put, he points to, you know, cases where that seems to be what's happening. But what we don't have in Marx is a count of how is that really possible? What, what are the mechanisms that could explain that sort of um, systematically distorting influence on our, on our thinking? So that's where the, you know, that's one half of it. And once we're there, then we still have the second half. Is there really a ruling class? Are they really, et cetera, et cetera. But so, but the, I think that's where a lot of this work goes. The, the, the first half of this work is to say, wait, is there any evidence that we could be really have our beliefs distorted in this way? And that's what your work primarily focuses on is the bottom up part. Yeah, I, I do both parts, but I think the, um, I do both parts. So I, I think they're both, I think they work together. Um, so. But you think less has been done on the first part, the bottom up. Part. I think a lot less has been done on the first part. So, you know, for instance, I think there are a number of thinkers like Jan Elster is a, is a case where he said, you know, to his credit, I think he said, you know, for, for Marx to be, for, you know, a theory of ideology really needs this kind of work to be done. He himself didn't do it. He also wondered if it could really be spelled out. And so, but the thought is, this is really the biggest gap um, mm-hmm. 
in the theorizing. So that's what I, so that's a big chunk of my work. I mean, the first part is just exegetical, trying to comb through the weeds of, of Marx's various um, mm-hmm. uh, thoughts and say, is there a through line? And then the second is just like, okay, this is interesting. If this were true, this would be pretty dramatic. Yeah. Is it at all plausible? There's, there are many questions I want to ask you, uh, and it's very difficult to know where to begin. But let me, let me focus on a remark you sort of said offhandedly, and I, I want clarification on it because it might have just been casualness in speaking or it might be your sincere view. You said there's this, there's this I don't know if, if it's a conundrum or a puzzle or so, something anyway mysterious about how these theologians, these economists, these moral philosophers can be um, sincere but also doing work that serves the interest of the ruling class. Um, that, why is that supposed to be a conundrum? Yeah, so it wouldn't be a conundrum, but it's the falsity part or the, the poor theorizing uh-huh. that, makes it, uh, that makes it a little more, which has made it um, harder to swallow for some people, right? It wouldn't be the, you know, why would it be the case that people are getting things wrong or theorizing in ways that seem to be getting things wrong um, when that has this consequence. So the fact that, you know, maybe I'm like an economist or I'm a theologian, you know, and I'm supporting the ruling class, that part's not the tricky part. I think the tricky part is it wouldn't be tricky if it was also correct or seemed right in most cases. But I think the tricky part is thinking why, why would that, you know, Marx's view is really one of, People are, are poor theorists. They're poor theorizers. They're reflecting mm-hmm. on society in a way that's kind of getting it wrong or shallow or superficial, something like this. And I think that's the part, that's the part that's a little tricky. How could it be the case that people are systematically getting the facts wrong? So my, my, my intuition is that it's really difficult to get the facts right. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, to me, the surprising thing is sort of like, how do people get things right? Um, so, so, you know, a lot of this, I think, depends on whether or not you think there's facts to be gotten in the first place, right? So, you know, take a look at natural science. I think you, and, and I know at least I, but I would imagine you think there are facts out there for natural science to discover, and it's taken a very, very long time for natural science to discover them, at least looked at in the grand sweep of human history. And even if you start history from like Newton on, it's still taken a very long time to discover all sorts of facts. So that most scientists where there's some clear feedback mechanism, get things wrong, doesn't surprise me because it just seems to be, if you look at history, that seems to be what happens. They get things wrong until they get it right. And then they, they save that and they keep on adding to it. That's the hope anyway. But when it comes to, say, morality, this gets trickier, right? Mm -hmm. You know, some people, many people, think that there are no facts to be had in the first place, right? So there's nothing to get wrong or right. So it's not surprising that there's disagreement because there's nothing to more the agreement. I I think that I'm not that skeptical, right? I think there is something to be gotten right. I don't know if I'd call it a fact, but I'm comfortable calling it a fact. One of the things you said earlier in the very first part of your schema is that um, most of people's moral, political, religious beliefs are wrong. That suggests that some aren't, right? Some moral beliefs, let's say, are correct. So is it fair to say you think some moral beliefs are correct? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, good. These are an excellent set of questions. I, so I, um, the account I present can remain agnostic to, to, mm-hmm. to some degree, right? Um, the, uh, we, I mean, we can get, you know, I, I won't beat around the bush. I, you know, I'm also, I tend to be actually a little bit of a, um, anti-realist meta-ethically. We can come back to that. But, but huh. nothing that I say, nothing that I, no, my account doesn't depend on that. Um, so the, the thing that is interesting, I mean, maybe, maybe it's helpful to get a case in view where it does seem maybe more surprising or something. I think when we think about, I mean, I, I actually feel like we probably have a lot of sympathy. So in some ways you are not the person who's going to be the most shocked by this kind of account or something. Okay. Um, but a lot of people are a little more so. Um, but, you know, I, I think of something to, to get something that marks a case that Marx would find really interesting. I mean, think about something that we think is uh, a, a brutal period, right? Something like antebellum slavery, okay? Um, often when you talk to uh, moral theorists, uh, moral philosophers, there's a view that, like, people must have known what they were doing was really awful. Um, they must have just been doing it anyways. There's this kind of armchair thought. Um, but when you read the literature from that time, uh, you know, the uh, not just the novels, but like, you know, the sermons, the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Once in a while, you get the sense that people thought like, yeah, there's there's something shady about this. But yeah. a lot of the times you got you get the sense for really contradictory reasons, all sorts of reasons. They're um, they're bizarre, typically, um, but from the perspective of some sort of pseudoscience or the perspective of some sort of the Romans did it this way. It's got to be good or, you know, whatever, all sorts of reading of scripture, et cetera. Um, people go through, jump through these hoops of post hoc rationalizations of this is right. This is the way things should be. This is really the natural order. There might be some problems around the margins, etc. But this is really, this is really sort of the best of all possible worlds. And then there will be some sort of intra party disputes about something like that, right? So, um, and then I think now we look back. Hopefully, we look back and we think, okay, that's crazy. People were really um, it's hard to believe anybody took any of these arguments seriously. Um, and it's not just, right, and so I think that's the sort of thing for Marx that he would be particularly interested in. A case like this where those beliefs are shot through, and it's not just a, a case of false moral beliefs, but, um, you know, views about right interpretation of scripture or something, views about the role of, you know, um, brain science views about, you know, all of these, these kind of beliefs. It's, it's not just the case that, um, you know, we're talking about one off moral beliefs. Usually a belief is sort of a, usually a moral belief is sort of a constellation. It'll be a little, it'll be some sort of hodgepodge of descriptive components and normative components. Um, so the surprising thing, I think with a, you know, why I want to say the hedge with saying most of these beliefs are false is not a is it's not my way of saying some of the normative beliefs are true. It's just to say that any sort of constellation of beliefs you have, it doesn't have to be consist entirely of false beliefs, right? Some of those components are going to be almost trivially true, right? Like here's a view about human beings. Here's one part of that view. There are human beings or whatever. You know, there's going to be a lot of true in any constellation of beliefs, there's going to be a lot of true beliefs too. So the, the sort of hedge about most of the beliefs is, is, is meant to capture that the sort of constellation, the entire constellation of beliefs gets undermined 
It's not uh-huh. the thought that like there are, you know, I'm not taking a stance with respect to there are some true and false moral beliefs. Does that make sense? I mean, is that I'm going to see if it makes sense. So, okay, like, l- l- let's let's say that there's no fact of the matter about moral beliefs, and yet um, there's still things like consistency relationships, right? There's still things like robustness of the reasons you have in favor of one conclusion or another. So, even if you're an anti-realist about morality, mm-hmm. it's one thing to say um, people have moral worth and virtue of their ability to suffer. Right, which is a kind of utilitarian sort of attitude, and then to co- combine that belief with, by the way, these black people over here, they don't have moral worth, and it looks straightforwardly contradictory. So how do people not see that obvious contradiction, right? And so one way is that they might say, oh, they're not people, right? Or they might say, oh, they're not really suffering; they look to be. Or they are suffering, but it's for their own good in the long run or something like that, right? And so, you know, there are ways out of it. And uh, when it comes to certain very basic moral intuitions, maybe there's no justifying them or not, but they're, they're widespread enough. Like pain is generally bad. Pleasure is generally good. My family matters. My friends matter. My community matters. But then when you get really offbeat moral beliefs that seem to be instrumentally involved in horrific practices, those are the ones that draw people's attention. And moral theorists, uh, what Brian Leiter would call bourgeois moral theorists, will look at them and say, oh, the reasoning is so bad that they must have known it and they're just willfully ignoring it. And you're saying, no, that's not correct. The reasoning might be terrible, but nevertheless, they really aren't seeing it. And so that's the puzzle. How do people miss exactly. such obvious moral, uh, moral facts or moral reasons given their other moral beliefs? And so Marx tries to explain those kind of lapses with like ideology. Yeah, fair? good. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, one little caveat, but I, I, but I think uh, very well said. I mean, again, it's going to be diagnostic in each case, right? There's going to be, we're, we're going to look at various constellation of beliefs. And like you said, th- we'll see different irrationalities at different moments. Some it will be a, con- a, a set of beliefs that are internally inconsistent. And that seems to be the problem. Some are, it's going to be a belief based on pseudoscience. Some is mm-hmm. it's going to be a, um, an inference based on scripture, which implies both that the scripture tracks any truth at all, and that that's a good reading of that scripture, whatever, or whatever. These, mm-hmm. So in each case, it's going to be diagnostic. It's not always, so I wouldn't say that, right. So, so that's what I would say. I don't think, I don't think we, again, I think there's space to, I think you could be a moral realist of some stripe and see this as a worry. Like if there, there are moral qualities, but here is a weird thing. Um, you know, there's, there are facts of the matter. You could be this kind of more realist. There's some sort of facts of the matter. And when we look at cases, we see weirdly looking back through the history, we are sort of sabotaged in our thinking. Uh, we're bad epistemic agents or something. And here are the mechanisms that explain why we're bad epistemic agents. But you could also be not have a, a, a be a moral realist. Um, in which case you're, you know, you're, you're just seeing why there's a, it's a it's a weird kind of explanation of a certain kind of error, right? Why why do why did these why were people gripped by this sort of picture? Why did it seem so true to them? If you're if you're a moral anti-realist, there's some sense where all of this is going to be false, right? But I think um, so. Again, I guess it's like I, I'm just 
this account stays agnostic with respect mm-hmm. to, is it the case, whether it's the case that there are moral facts out there that we're tracking badly, here's just why our, our, um, we're defeated all the time, or um, if there's not, it's still why do certain views get a grip on us and seem, seem so um, compelling for a while and then drop off and seem so lose their grip on us. Yeah, so I guess it's that's the thought. Why, you know, whether there's facts out there or not, um, it, it's what seems to be the case when you look through history is certain pictures get grip, get a grip on us at certain periods of time. Um, what explains that? Uh, what explains that? That's 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 the work that I think needs to be done with the micro foundational bits. Okay, so let's let's start at the bottom, right? So so you've got. A person, and and we're going to start at the bottom. Like, I don't I don't know if I want to say pre-ruling class. I don't know if you think there ever was a pre-ruling class moment other than prehistorical moments. But um, just what are the basic psychological cognitive mechanisms that you think give rise to bad moral reasoning or bad political reasoning, that kind of stuff? So, what what are you thinking about in particular? Yeah, good. I mean, so in some ways, this is just the word. This is always can be the tricky part of a presentation because here it is really just looking to, um, I mean, things that seem so um, maybe far-fetched for armchair philosophy is sort of the bread and butter of social psychology. So, right. the, so when you look to the decades of research of social psychology, you see just... Uh, nearly infinite laundry list of the various ways that uh, we are irrational, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we can go through cases, those are fun, but I would just say in general, there's, you know, we can think of these in terms of, there's one class um, we can call cognitive biases, sort of following Kahneman and Tversky, um, but there's a tradition even before them. I mean, they're they're the most famous of that tradition, but um, mm-hmm. lots of work before them and after them. And then another set of beliefs, another set of biases that are like motivated biases. Um, yeah. So I um, and there, you know, especially the work of like somebody starting with like Lerner, but going through Just, who's working now right now um, uh, in sort of belief in just world theory, these kind of things. But so so here's the rough idea. I mean, in some ways, it's weird because you can start looking through the various cases and they can almost seem like cute, like little quirks of our reasoning or something. But it's really, I think, death by a thousand cuts where mm-hmm. you you really start you the, a picture emerges of us not being the sort of epistemic agents that we idealize. Right. So, I mean, what would it be? What do we, what do we want as idealistic agents? We sort of think of ourselves hopefully as, you know, we make judgments on the basis of the facts before us. Um, We have a certain amount of epistemic modesty, right? I don't make a vast generalization. You know, I don't make a, a, I don't make a large induction on the basis of one case before me. (laughs) Some sort of sensitivity to the thought that like, oh, there's other information out there that maybe is going to, you know, um, be in tension with this. I need to be, I need to be cognizant of the fact that I have a, I'm working with a limited set of data. Um, And then super importantly, right, sort of updating updating on in the basis of new evidence right so it shouldn't be the case for instance i mean we typically think right it shouldn't be the case that the order of the information that we encounter should affect how you know our final weighting about it etc so right so this kind of thought 
good judgments on the basis of evidence, a certain amount of epistemic modesty, um, and, uh, and an openness to updating our credences, as they say. Um, but, right. But. And, and what it, what it, we see is we do none of those things very well, actually, mm-hmm. in practice, right? Uh, so people form beliefs on the basis of init- initial information. They um, will hold on to those beliefs even after the evidence for them has been completely discredited. These are like these Lee studies we see that are so uh, depressing. Um, you know, I tell you, you did very well on a certain test and you start thinking of yourself as like a great geographer or something. And now I tell you like, no, that was just a joke. And now I ask you, are you a good geographer? And you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm still a pretty good, I'm still better than average or whatever advice. Right? Right, so yeah. This kind of thing, right. That we, um, uh, initial information, sets expectations. Um, so there's, and again, there's just lots of literature on this where um, I will, having a, sort of an initial expectation, often in the case of, you know, um, a stereotyped belief, I will see correlations that don't actually exist. If I expect certain kind of behaviors from you, I will mm-hmm. find that, even in cases where it's not. And conversely, we overlook correlations where they really exist, correlations that are really salient. But if I'm not expecting it, I don't see it. Um, counterfactual thinking, people rarely, people rarely engage in counterfactual thinking except in sort of emergency cases where something is, you know, the, the uh, floor has been, you know, the carpet's pulled out from underneath them or something. And then they start thinking about, oh, maybe it could be this or that. But even the range of ways we think is, is pretty constrained. So, you know, it's this, for these kind of um, cognitive, we're sort of in the area of cognitive biases. There's sort of just a, a laundry list of these things that show, that really undermine, you know, those kind of three features of, say, you know, the ideal epistemic agent or something. We're, we're poor at that. We're poor at that. Um, then there's these sort of hybrid cognitive slash motivational um, findings that we tend to, things that we, we just see more often, we tend to start evaluating more favorably. Um, we get kind of attached to, right? So there's a, so, you know, um, judgments about, yeah. So, the, you know, the, that's the, the mere exposure effect. Is that what that's exactly. called? That's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. So tasting something, seeing photos of some group of people, whatever. I just, I start to think like, oh, that's kind of nice. And the weird thing is, though that's a, a preference, it starts to go hand in glove too with, we also think that people, we overestimate the amount of people who agree with us. And we tend to think people are sort of deviants who disagree with us. And so this sort of, so these sort of things start to go hand in glove. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a, there's a library of this kind of research that undermines just us as cognitive, um, you know, as epistemic agents for just cognitive reasons. I mean, again, these, these are all cases where I don't care going in what the facts are, right? I'm not invested in one way or another in something being some way or other, but I just start to process information in a way that makes me a less than ideal epistemic agent. On the other hand, we have, you know, uh, these motivational biases, which are essentially they're, they're, I employ these cognitive biased mechanisms in order to get the result I want. I want some certain outcome and I will look for evidence. I will look, I will investigate until I can confirm it, till I have anything to sort of hang my hat on to confirm it. And disconfirming evidence, I sort of will dismiss, it's dismiss, dismiss, et cetera. Um, so, so that ramps things up. Now, of course, we're going to be motivated in all sorts of ways. 
But the interesting thing in this domain are the cases where this learner style stuff, where it seems like one through line for human motivation, at least, you know, in as far as we can test now, we don't know if this was the case in the 1500s or something, but as far as we're testing now, um, we have a desire to believe that we live in a world that's roughly fair, where people roughly get what they deserve. Um, and there's, there's probably epistemic reasons to want this, to make the world seem more orderly, um, issues of justice, whatever, whatever the sort of sub mechanisms are. Um, this is, this is something we do. So what does that look like in practice? We want to believe the world is a fair place where people get roughly what they deserve. When we're confronted with instances that seem to disconfirm that, we go to work to sort of get back to equilibrium. So mm-hmm. we either try to see, you know, this, this sort of victim blaming kind of thing or to say, you know, these, these sort of mechanisms um, where rather than saying like, oh, yeah, in this case, it seems like an unjust thing or a terrible thing that's happened or we, we try to start making sense of it in a way. And, and again, this is one of those things that the literature is depressing and kind of astounding on. We do this in all sorts of cases um, with the poor, with the sick victims of sexual harassment, refugees, elderly, et cetera. They have this laundry list of saying like, there's something they did or there's some, there's something that can explain it or um, all's well that ends well. Like it's not great now, but like, you know, you need to, they'll, it'll be good for them in the end or something like this. So, so it's, you know, again, it's sort of like uh, all of the, literature points in this direction that, you know, we set off. So, you know, again, to go back to our sort of antebellum slavery case, right? It's like, if you're growing up in antebellum South, um, we often wonder like, how could people just not see that was the wrong thing to do? And in some ways it's like, I, I think these mechanisms go a long way in explaining why for most people, it wasn't really registering. Um, there was some sort of thought of, you know, the stereotypes they expected, they, they found ways of seeing. The disconfirming stereotypes, they found ways of not seeing. Um, and then there's some motivation, of course, to, to imagine that, you know, you don't want to imagine things are as bad as they, they are in these kind of cases. So that kind of work. And then this is all before, again, I mean, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing, right? So it's like, you know, I'm pulling these apart in practice, this idea that there's this bottom up and this top down. I don't, you know, they're, they're both existing simultaneously when it all, you know, when it all dawned, I I don't know, probably early on in our, in our organization together, but right. So in any moment, it's like even left to your own devices, you're going to sort of see things the way they are is to take them to be the way they should be. And then of course, like then you're going to church and you're going to be getting the messaging that this is God's will. And you go to school and you're getting the messaging that, you know, you are by, you merit, you're, you know, it's a meritocracy, everyone, whatever. Um, and little stories to help you make sense of, you know, um, any sort of uh, leftover discomfort you might feel in these cases or something to, you know. Right. So, so, so it seems like, you're, you're pointing to rafts of studies in cognitive psychology and social psychology as pointing to the picture of human beings as pretty bad at reasoning, as, as being, generally speaking, for lack of a better word, irrational in the way they think about the world and the way they conduct themselves even, and that 
the reason people are like this is not just or only because they've been trained to be like this, but there are sort of, uh, I don't know if you'd be comfortable with the word innate or natural, but there are these very deep set mechanisms in the way the mind works and the way we perceive the world that explain why we have irrationality in this way. And this would persist even if there were no ruling class, maybe not to the same degree, but it wouldn't go away. Right. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, again, you know, um, like all empirical stuff, we, you know, we would have to time machine back a thousand years to run these same studies on people. Probably 10,000 years. Or 10,000 years or whatever to see, to see how it played out. Um, so I, you know, again, I, I I don't want to overgeneralize from what we know, but my hunch is, yeah, I don't see any, I don't see, I I don't see any, none none of the evidence suggests that this is something that's just in a moment in time. Now, of course it can be, these things can be, um, manipulated in different ways or exacerbated in different ways, but, you know, I suspect that. I mean, but this is now, this is just pure speculation, right? Um, but yeah, I, I don't see any reason to think this is merely these sort of deep seated cognitive dispositions are merely the product of some sort of, you know, late modern capitalism or some configuration <laughs> right. like that. And which is a, you know, which is a real worry, right? I mean, I, um, I don't so, think it's a real worry, but maybe you do. Uh, why don't you think it's a real worry? You think, well, so uh, maybe I'm not understanding you correctly. You think it's a real worry that all these biases are due just to late modern capitalism and that they oh, didn't no, no, exist? No, oh, okay. Sorry. I think it's a real worry if this is sort of like built into the human condition in a way. Oh, um, I see. I, I would prefer that we were really A plus epistemic agents. That would be, if I could <laughs> right. choose, if I could choose, yeah. that would be my yeah. preference. Um, and it seems like, uh, the, it seems like we're not. Now, there's a question of, I mean, again, I, I do think a, a question remains open, even in light of this literature, to how how damaging this is, what it da- how damning the picture is. So, you know, one question is, right, the, the question you asked, which is, is this sort of baked into human nature? Is this a, a story? Maybe it's the case, and maybe even if we, you know, even in the utopian paradise, we're still going to, um, have these tendencies. It, we, might, we might be in a funny situation if we were in a utopia, right, where we were endorsing the utopia, but for these kind of weird biased reasons. Sure. Yeah. So that will bother some people. It won't bother other people. We might, yeah. you know, be have good beliefs for the wrong reasons or something. Um, yeah. But there's another question of, you know, how deep these biases are. So the biases are undeniable. Um, the question is, you know, are they a difficulty we face along the way to more or less getting things right? Um, or are they sort of so pervasive? It's like we are just trapped in this sort of nightmare. and There's no way to see our way out of. Um, I think that's an, I think that remains an open question. I think Marx, you know, for, for Marx, uh, he oh, yeah. was a little, he was a little more optimistic, right? He was a little more, I think he thought we have these pressures we have these pressures um, but part of the work, he's still a product of the Enlightenment. I mean, part of the work is um, trying, like, working to kind of remove the blinders. There's going to be pressure. They're going to explain why we um, get sort of trapped in seeing the way things the way we do. But part of the work of a good political theorist would be to sort of disabuse us of some of these notions and to say, like, I know it looks like this. Um, I know that, you know, 
dear worker, you know, it's like a proletariat consciousness raising or something. Right. I know uh-huh. like, so for Marx, it's like, here, here's a classic case for Marx, right. Um, in capitalist society, it appears to the worker, they're told, and it sort of looks like it. If you just see it from the outside, it appears that the person, the worker and the factory owner are peers in a way. They're just free contractors. I go in, I'm the worker, you're the factory owner. I go in, we shake on, you know, we agree on our terms, we shake on it. It all looks kind of nice, like the free exchange of, right. But Marx is saying, and in a society that says like, that's exactly how you should see it. That's what's going on. Then it's like, even as a worker, I might think like, well, you know, whatever. It's, it was a, that was a fair exchange. And, but the uh, good social scientist, Marx would think, Marx would think, uh, Mm -hmm. his job is to say, come on, look at the, look at the, constraints that are operating on you respectively this is not a condition of like free exchange of equals you you can work it's different than the surf where you have to work for this one guy now you can work for this guy or that guy or that guy but the conditions are essentially the same and you have no say in that in insofar as so these kind of notions of right so that so that's a case for marx right where um looks like you're a free contractor, especially if you're getting kind of fed this line of like everyone's free. Um, but Marx would say, okay, you're not, this is not a, this is not really a condition of freedom, but Marx is optimistic enough to think he can tell you that. And you can think like, oh yeah, that seems right to me. You know, so there's some sort of notion of like, we're going to, there's going to be stumbling blocks all, along the way, but, but we can kind of fight our way through the muck and, and, um, get clear on the conditions or something. I don't know. You know, I mean, there's, there's people that came after Marx who are much more pessimistic. I mean, the Frankfurt school famously thought, no, 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 this is just hopeless for all of, for these sort of reasons, but it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just hopeless. We're trapped. There's no way, there's no way to see our way out of this. So, you know, I think that remains an open question worth, worth real empirical investigation. Like how pervasive are these but it's tricky and i mean i think the thing i would add is just to sort of echo something you said earlier that i think is important so you know for marx um these things our thinking is going to be constrained in these ways even in the case where we're doing science like you you were talking earlier about it's hard to get the it's hard to get the facts right um and it's it is hard to get the facts right but for exactly the reasons you were saying science has this nice thing which is like um it seems to be dealing with a world that uh, is um, pushes back, right? So if I believe, you know, my faith can move mountains literally or whatever, um, those mountains just don't get moved. And I either have to think like, oh, my faith can't do that or my faith is not good or something like this, right? I mean, it's like the world has, if I think like, ah, those lions don't mean me any harm, it's like, and then the lions start devouring us. You know, the world's, is responsive in a way to that kind of theorizing. And there is, and I think this is the question of whether you're a moral realist or not, there is this very weird feature of moral facts, if you, if you believe in them, which is like they, they don't seem to um, stand in the way of our thinking or interfere with our thinking in the way that sort of theories about gravity or something tend to be more responsive to the, earthly facts mm-hmm. or something so i think you know so you know there there's a way so for somebody like marx right you can he can be sort of pro-science even if he's thinking like yeah you know it's gonna there's gonna be problems it's gonna be hard along the way but the question when we start thinking about how we should live the best society these kind of things that where the world doesn't 
necessarily give us, it's not clear what kind of information, mm-hmm. if there's moral facts and we're getting them wrong, it's not clear exactly what kind of, uh, how the world is letting us know that in the way that it often does in the physical sciences, say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's going to be an analogy you could make with math, or there's going to be an analogy you could make with um, how certain arguments just seem more persuasive than others, and yet, you know, you 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 can you want to fight against the conclusion, and yet you can't. Like it just seems, oh yeah, that just seems right. I, I forgot who it was. There was some thinker who called that the forceless force of arguments. I think it was Habermas, right? The forceless force of arguments, where. Uh, and there are psychological studies <clears throat> that demonstrate this, where people can want a particular conclusion to be true, and yet still uh, arrive at its denial, because the the reasons against it seem so good. Um, and this actually this actually relates to a couple of things. One of the things you were talking about with all the social psychology and the cognitive psychology, I have reservations about all that. Um, I don't yet have a well worked out enough view to like argue against them, but I'm going to, I'm going to give a few things to say by way of worry. First of all, um, there's the replication crisis, right? Where lots of these uh, findings, especially in fields like priming, for instance, Mm -hmm. were discovered to be um, non-replicable. And, you know, there's a lot of nuance to the replication crisis. It could be that they weren't replicated because the original people were just really good at doing experiments and the replicators weren't so good, but it could be that, uh, they just didn't do a very good job, right? You could have Mark Hauser like stuff where people are searching for a conclusion and they just keep on running the experiment until mm-hmm. they get it. Mm-hmm. And besides the replication crisis, though, here's a kind of, uh, I don't know if I want to call this a Marxian critique of psychology, but a, maybe a, um, an ideological critique. You might say that psychologists have a bias bias. Right? There's a psychologist named Lee Jussum who makes that allegation against the field of social psychology. Psychologists as a group are looking for ways in which people are imperfect reasoners. And there's a lot of reasons they might do that, right? It gives them something to do. Mm-hmm. It makes them who know this stuff feel superior to them. It always justifies certain kinds of policies to intrude in people's lives and tell them they're not thinking properly, right? <laughs> and uh, And people, psychologists don't focus as much on ways in which people get things right as opposed to get things wrong. And for understandable reasons, a lot of people are more interested in abnormal psychology than normal psychology, right? Criminals are cool. You know, law-abiding citizens aren't. So um, there's that worry you have, which is a kind of worry that I think, um, say, uh, I I don't want to just say Marxist, but some people have about economists as a field, right? That the field has suffered ideological capture in a way that other fields maybe haven't, or at least in a different way from other fields. Uh, The third thing, though, the thing that gives me the most reservation actually comes from this book, which I have right next to me, because I've been reading it. I'm almost done. I'm not done yet. It's called The Enigma of Reason by Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber. I don't know if you've read it. but um, but it's on my list. I commend it to you highly. I think... So I read Kahneman and, and Tversky. I've read the cognitive bias stuff. I've read Gerd Gigerenzer, who's sort of one of their critics. Mm-hmm. But Sperber and Mercier, they come at this from an evolutionary psychology point of view. And I know I keep on mentioning Brian Leiter, uh, but I know this uh, evolutionary psychology comes under fire from a lot of quarters. They're not the kind of evolutionary psychologists who seek to um, justify existing inequalities, right? They're not, they're not that in that camp. Instead, the, the question they ask is like, the people who talk on and on about cognitive biases, right? 
they have they seem to have this model that if reason were good, it would help people solve problems. It would help people respond to the evidence. It would help people like do things in a certain way. And then they point out that there's all these biases, right? So like it seems like what reason is supposed to do, its function is to solve problems for a person. And yet it suffers from all these biases like confirmation bias, right? Where you're terrible at finding evidence that undermines your own views. And so reason seems to be very poorly designed to solve the problems it's allegedly existing to solve. And they say from an evolutionary perspective, that doesn't make any sense. It would be very strange if the point of the eye was to see and it was just terrible at see, right? Um, so maybe, and, and of course, functions are a thing that, you know, what is a function? And they take basically a Ruth Millican line, you know, there's a survival enhancement. That's why it's called a function. But they claim that reason does not exist. They call that the intellectualist picture. Reason does not exist to solve an individual's intellectual problems. Reason is, they call this the interactionist picture. Reason is a social phenomenon. The point of reason is to either help you with prospective decisions or to help you justify decisions you've made in the past. And the, the, what, what determines what you count as a good justification uh, at least for your past decisions, it's, it's a, are its effects on your reputation. And so one of the things, the reason that confirmation bias works the way it does is that you basically, reason is meant to function in an interactive setting. And so when we're having this conversation, you and I are constantly interacting. We're constantly giving signs we've understood. We're, we like raise our eyebrows if we find something doesn't make any sense to us, or we just nod if we agree, that kind of stuff. And the reason we do this is because there's so many possible contextual differences that we have to find that these responses sort of clue us in. It's like, okay, I'm on the right track. I should keep on talking because I want you to think well of me, right? I'm not very good at finding my own problems. That's your job. My job is to find your problems. So the recent confirmation bias, which they call my side bias, the reason why it works the way it does is because we're very adept at finding other people's problems and we rely on them as sort of like resources to find our own problems, right? And there's lots more of this I could say, but the basic point is that if you take an evolutionary perspective and you think reason is supposed to benefit you in some way, what way is it supposed to benefit you? Why do we have reason? And they think it's basically to protect our reputation, to enhance our reputation, to help other people in our group figure out what helps the group solve its problems, that kind of stuff. And I think this is all compatible, by the way, with your, um, I don't know, as you said, you're not sure what the label is for you. If you, your Marxist friends call you a non-Marxist, your non-Marxist friends call you Marxist. So I'll call you like a, a uh, schmarxist, right? Uh, so as a schmarxist, you might find this maybe congenial to you because there might be ways of organizing society where we could use our biases to our advantage to like advantage the society to stay around. But again, I haven't finished reading the book. I'm just, I'm, I'm pretty close to finishing it. I commend it to you. Maybe you, you might want to talk to Hugo Mercier because he might mm -hmm. have a lot of stuff to say to you too, but that's just my, that's my main mm -hmm. reservation about this bottom up part of your picture. But regardless of that, there's clearly some times when people, you can put them into situations where they're going to do funny stuff, right? Um, if, if, if I ask you to say toy boat five times fast, you won't be able to do it. It doesn't mean you can't speak. It means that when you're put in certain kinds of situations for which your mouth wasn't sort of formed or for which speech wasn't formed, it's not going to work, right? So, um, so let's, let's go back to this. Uh, if you want to respond, actually, I should let you respond. 
Do you want to respond to any of that? Yeah, I would just, I mean, just quickly, I mean, a lot of interesting thoughts there. I mean, quickly, replication crisis, of course, that's real. That needs to be taken seriously. Um, I think there's, uh, right. I think one, as, as outsiders to that, sort of as people who are, you know, reading this literature, I think there are ways that we can, we can avoid the controversial stuff, right? There's, there's a, there's some stuff that has been, is more in the center of this controversy. There's a lot of things that have held up, right? So, mm-hmm. there, you know, so, so we'd, we'd want to be, uh, we just want to be careful about what mm-hmm. we're looking to. But I think even if we just stick with, so, you know, in my dissertation, for instance, I tried to just stick with the uncontroversial stuff. I was writing a lot of that during that crisis. So that was, you know, uh, <laughs> right. so it's like, okay, so it's just like, okay, just stick with the stuff that seems relatively uncontroversial. Okay. Um, the question, I mean, the, the evolutionary stuff is interesting. And I, and I don't want to pretend like, no, that's like just a non-starter. I mean, but there are things where there's perfectly reasonable, right? You might think like how you write the eye, how, why would we evolve eyes that couldn't see well? Well, in certain kinds of things with reasoning, it can be a little trickier, right? So here's a perfectly, here's a perfectly um, suitable use of, of bias. Um, it's good to have false positives in the case of saber tooth tigers. I will mm-hmm. be better served, like I will be better served um, being bad at guessing the exact number of saber-toothed tigers, I will be I will be I'll be better served if I overestimate the number of saber-toothed tigers in the region, right? Yeah. Because right. So um, that's I mean that's a one little example, but it's like that kind of thing, right? What is reasoning for? It's not that reasoning is for. Do, reasoning can serve us in ways that are not necessarily in the ways that serve us vis-a-vis the ideal epistemic agent, right? So this sort of wanting to have false positives would be a case of that. We'd, we'd have to go through and think of the other ways. The other question is, could reasoning be, you know, okay locally, not get us in trouble locally enough to get our genes passed on mm-hmm. and give out when we're sort of thinking broader about, you know, cultural norms and stuff, right? Um, and, you know, I mean, just think about cases like, you know, I mean, a lot of the motivational biases, right? We're not going to be ill-served. There's plenty of false beliefs that don't immediately undermine our standing in the world, right? I take it that a lot of people who benefit from the society as it is, there'll be a question if it's going to get them in trouble in the long run. But in the you know, as long as things are in their favor, it's like the kings mm-hmm. can believe whatever the kings believe. I mean, at some day, some point, it's going to get bad for them, but they can go on for many centuries, you know. So so it's an interesting question, you know, this question of what is reasoning for, why would it be so bad if it were designed to make us ideal epistemic agents? Well, I don't think it was, it's it's evolved with us, you know, and, and we don't need to be, right? So but that's one sort of set of things. The thing that's interesting, though, that, that I that would be worth that requires more thinking through is this notion of sort of communal reasoning. Like I am confirmation biased in my own case. That's because it's sort of like we're imagining we're a jury, right? And what we want in are we, we're a law court. What we want in that case is you argue the best version of your mm-hmm. case. I argue the best, and the, that will benefit the facts. That's a nice thought. That's a really nice thought. And it is true that um, confirmation bias, especially with motivated reasoners, for reasons you're suggesting, actually prove to be really good critics of what, it's not that they just make up stuff. They're really good at finding the weak spots in 
arguments. They just, the problem is it's asymmetrical. They don't do it in their own cases, right? So maybe here's the ideal thought, the thing that you're suggesting. Doesn't matter if I'm um, biased in my own case. If you're biased in your own case, and then we get together, we're great. There's a lot of evidence, though. I mean, again, this is that... um, that we don't fix our biases in these, these ways, right? That I don't, it's not like I'm motivated in my own case. You were motivated in my own case. And then we get together and work it out as agents. Uh, we tend to remain sort of entrenched or there's these sort of, you know, for Cass Sunstein style worries, sure. um, you know, we get in these cascade effects, right? Where it's like even one of us had the good information, but in a group, for whatever reason, again, there's cognitive and motivational reasons. One yeah. of us sort of sits and sits on the facts and keeps quiet about it. Um, and yeah, so, and, and so there's, it, it's an open case, right? I mean, when you really look at how groups reason together, I think uh, there the evidence is not, it's not, that's not a heartwarming story either. Um, sometimes we do well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we actually move even further afield uh, than we originally started out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking here of the work of Philip Tetlock with super forecasters, and there are certain conditions you can put groups in where they will reason really well. And one of those is when you use a Delphi method, right, where you have the groups independently come up with answers for stuff, and then they hear the group average, and then they can reassess things in light of the group average. But the Delphi method works even better if people can actually argue not just hear the group average, but argue, hear, hear the reasons for the group average. And then people are really good at discounting erroneous reasons and taking quite seriously really good reasons. So if I tell you, you know, there's a 20% chance that it's going to rain tomorrow and you say, how do you know? And I say, Jeannie told me, you'll be like, okay, that doesn't change my credence at all. But if I say, you know, my app on my iPhone told me, that's going to really increase your credence. Um, and people are pretty good at that. The the one problem, and I've 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 taken a seminar with Tetlock's people on super forecasting, and one one of the problems they point to is that if you see the people as they're giving reasons, right, and one of them is a kind of a head honcho, then that has a very distorting effect on the kinds of reasons. So definitely, there are things that can happen because we're concerned about reputation. If if uh, Mercier and Sperber are right, the person, if there's a, a powerful leader that can really affect a reputation. So we're going to want to satisfy that person regardless of whether it's correct or not. We're going to want to, um, to help that person. And to, to, to make a very prosaic example, there's been a lot of evidence for years that overall it benefits your team to, in football, American football, to kick, uh, to not punt on fourth down, but to go for it. Um, and yet coaches knew this, but still wouldn't do it. And I think the best explanation is they knew that if they did that and it failed, they'd get fired because the, the spectators don't know about any of that statistical research. Whereas if they punted on fourth down and it failed, well, that's normal. The spectators wouldn't get mad at them for that because that's what you're supposed to do, even though statistically speaking, it's not as good, right? And then you can multiply these examples over and over. But now we've been talking for a while. Let's get to the meat of it, right? Let's talk about how the... Um, elites enter into the picture and how they use these cognitive biases, if such there be, and motivational biases to their advantage and maybe um, how good they are at that. Maybe they're not so good at it. Maybe they're really good at it. And if so, how's that work? And you talked about a functionalist story. Maybe that's going to have some role to play. So tell me how the elites enter this picture. Yeah, good. I mean, so, so 
you know, and, and again, this now we're sort of, you know, in more familiar territory for Marx, but, but this is a broad tradition, right? A lot of, a lot of, you know, how is a society characterized? Marx thinks it's typically going to be the case that in, in most hierarchical societies, there's going to be something like a ruling class that emerges. This is going to be a group that's, for whatever reason, well positioned to take advantage of the situation. And okay, so we can do a full Marxist story. But the, there's, you know, uh, but we don't have to, right? We can just, the question is, even in a, a place like the U.S., right, are we in a situation right now where um, it's a full democracy, everyone, one person, one vote, everyone has a say? Is there sort of competing set of, you know, interest groups? Is that the, is that the people that have the power? Um, or is it competing elites? Or is there really something like one group that's that's a ruling class this is a this is also a very controversial issue this is why it's like you know talking about the bottom up account is is one piece of it but it's also very controversial this other piece again it depends on the audience you know so talking to some people that nothing could seem more obvious that we live in a case where there's elite domination other people think like no way this is all conspiracy theory um so that is Again, this is in some ways we have to have some sort of there's there's conceptual work. What would it what would what would count as a ruling class? Um, yeah. And um, you know, I think for the, uh, something rough and ready, you know, for this we could say something like something like I mean, for Marx, it's going to be something like this. Does it anything match this? Something like monopolization of political decision making. That's going to be a component part. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a class that can roughly they can secure the outcomes they desire when they desire them. And in cases where maybe they wouldn't be getting their way, is that a case where we can say they've made a concession in light of their other interests? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, that's going to be one aspect. Is there a group that sort of secures the, the political outcomes they desire? And then the second component is this sort of ideological component for Marx is their group, it should be the same group for Marx, that has sort of secured the channels in which the, the mainstream ideas that are going to be of social and political significance are sort of circulated. Um, so those are two different questions. They're both big, they're both big questions and, and controversial. Um, I think the interesting research, I mean, I, you know, the empirical research that I find interesting on this is something like the Gillens and Page research. Um, is this about oligarchy? America's yeah, it's, it's, in, it's in that vicinity. But so um, Gillens at Princeton, political scientist, um, did this massive study. And it was mm-hmm. this is quite interesting, right? So massive study um, looking at decades of public opinion polling. Um, what was polling people that, that both tracked uh, where they were on the economic economic scale and where they and what sort of outcomes they desired. So going back, you know, to like the 60s or something. Um, So massive amounts of this data. And then he goes through and he compares this data with the various outcomes that actually were affected um, politically. Um, And it's stunning. It's stunning data. Um, Basically what he finds is um, a couple of interesting things. One, um, a lot of people get what they want a lot of the time. Um, depend, whatever class you're from, a lot of people secure the outcomes they desired, whether you're on the bottom or the top or whatever. A lot of cases where people get what they want. Now, the question is, does this, is this good news? Does this mean that, um, you know, everyone's like getting a say? 
And, and the research he says is he says, what's, what is interesting is when you look at the cases where what seems to explain that is that often there's just agreement on issues that people want. But when you look at a case where people, they can't index it to the top 1%, the data doesn't uh, discriminate, but people in the top 10%, when people in the top 10% desire a particular outcome and it's in tension with what everybody else wants, they always win. They always okay. win. Always, so, as in zero, zero counterexamples. Like, like nearly zero counterexamples. I mean, like, uh, it's very, mar- the cases are really marginal. It's really striking. Th- this is true even for Brexit? So this is American data, and I so okay. and, and it's and it's this happened right before Brexit. So I we would have to kind of look at how. And again, you know, the, the claim shouldn't be that this is like even if there's one, that's only one. I'm just saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So zero is very stark. It's just zero is stark. But this is this is the conclusion that Gillens and Page reach essentially, which is like uh-huh. the people from other classes when yeah. their interest when their desires diverge doesn't matter. And then even in the case of interest groups, I mean, this is the sort of surprising one, even in cases where there's sort of a coalition of, you know, uh, other people, they don't get their interests met unless it's in, on the occasion when uh, the ruling, you know, like this elite class, say, this economically elite class um, yeah. is, is, has sided with it. Let, so let me stop you. Yeah, 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 please. Okay, because this raises a lot of questions. Um, so the, the top 10%, right, uh, economically speaking, and that's, I assume, in terms of either wealth or income or both. I don't know yeah. which. Um, it seems to me that there's a lot they disagree about. Is the claim that only when they agree, that 10% group, when they agree about something, right. is that when they always get what they want? Right. So that's that's going to be the case. So there's going to be cases where you know, opinions are going to diverge. And sometimes, yeah. you know, there's, there's sort of left-leaning, Democratic-leaning elites, Republican-leaning elites, et cetera. And so in those cases, the data is going to, you know, it'll, it'll play itself out, right? It's, yeah. it's going to, um, but when elites, and this is not um, like a small amount of the time, when the elites are in favor of certain things, they will get those things. So this tends to track things like, um you know, social issues, there's some diversity of views on, depending mm-hmm. on where, but certain economic issues and the constraints of certain economic issues, these, these kind of things. Um, okay, let me, let me stop you again, though. Yeah. So, so when the 10% agree, does that mean 51% of them want X and 49% don't? Or are you talking about when the 70% or like, what, what does it mean for the 10% to agree about an issue? Oh, that's a good question. I, we would have to dig into the data a little bit um, to okay. see this. Um I'm, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly, I, I think it's, you know, it's going to vary. It's not always, we're not talking about cases where it's just unanimous, yeah. um, but I'm not sure if he's counting 5149 cases, but, you know, in the majority of cases where there's a majority of uh, strong majority, let's say strong majority, let's say. So, so my next question is this, and I'm thinking here of the work of Akin and Bartles mm-hmm. and Jason Brennan couldn't, I mean, you haven't said whether this is bad or good. Right? Couldn't it be that those cases where the 10% agrees about something and the 90% disagrees are cases where there's a really clear answer about what's right and the 10% happen to know it and the 90% don't because they're not as well educated or because, you know, their interests aren't as well aligned or whatever. This anyway is what Brennan seems to think. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if Akin and Bartles agree with him about that, but at least they paint a picture of the average voter as woefully dense, right? Believing things that are demonstrably false 
or having uh, shocking levels of political ignorance. And they think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that it's about 90% of the public that's either incredibly ignorant or incredibly um, poorly motivated as political reasoners, where basically what they want is just whatever favors their own side, however poor thought out their reasons are. And the other, you know, 50% don't know who the vice president is or whatever. Um, so you haven't said whether this is bad or good. I assume you think it's bad, or at least you think it's um, evidence that there is a ruling class, in particular, a ruling economic class, and that it's a, basically about the top 10% of people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, okay, excellent. Uh, so it doesn't, we, yeah, we, we haven't said if this is good or bad. And it's true, the Bartle's work is especially is like damning. The, the American voter is woefully uninformed. Not just American. But, yeah, I think no, it's most right, voters. I, that's, that's probably right. I, the American literature is the stuff that I know the best, but, um, but it's depressing, right? So, right. That is leaving, you know, the question right now is, is there a group that secures the outcomes it wants? Mm-hmm. Again, that's already a big question, but if we can, if we can answer that affirmatively, then you might think, right, that 10% is, um, it's good. That's all for the good, right? We, right. That's, that's, thank, like thank a, God for the ruling class. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, we don't, I mean, just one little caveat. We don't know. It doesn't seem like it's probably the 10%. It's just that's what the, that's the, the most the data for the Gillen stuff can discriminate. It might be that it's the 1% of that 10% that's oh. doing the heavy lifting or whatever. We just, that we just don't know that yet. We have, we don't mm-hmm. have uh, that kind of research yet. Yeah. Um, so, right. And, and we're, we are bracketing the question of, is it good or ill? And there are a lot of cases where it seems like, you know, often the majority has views that, you know, we don't like or whatever. So that's, yeah. we, we would have to then go back and revisit that. But the question is just right now, is it the case that there's a group that somehow through economic status is able to secure the outcomes it wants, whether that's to the good or to the bad? Okay. Um, And there's lots of evidence that that is the case. And so just to be clear, as for ruling classes go, because like I believe in what sociologists call an elite theory, more or less, Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. elites in an organization generally determine what most of their members think. There are counterexamples, of course, where the members are just like, no F you. I think that happened with the Republican Party in the 2016 election, where the elites clearly did not want Trump, but he won anyway. Um, There are... uh, Lots of different kinds of elites, right? There's what you might call elites of culture. There are elites of science. There are elites of wealth. There are elites of academic, of learning. Um, I take it it's just there. There's or there's either not been studies about cultural elites or academic elites, or there have been studies and they show that they have very little power to influence outcomes. Is it is it the latter? It's the latter. I mean, this okay. is this is what the evidence is looking like so far, right? That, okay. Um, that. Uh, there are cultural, there are cultural influencers or whatever, right? But, yeah. the, but the moment when that happens, the moment if you're, you know, if you want to change things, the moment when you, the moment when that becomes possible is the moment that you convince people at the very top economically mm-hmm. to side with you. Um, okay. So now let's talk about that top 10% or 1% or whoever it yeah. is. So how does this happen? How do they get what they want? Yeah, so there's, so the the idea is going to be, I mean, and again, a lot of people who study elite theory, this is basically just the tradition of elite theory studying this. There's going to be a number of mechanisms, right? So the the first thing is just the phenomena. Is the phenomena real? 
if if it's real, if this data holds up and it kind of looks like it does, then the question is what mechanisms could explain that? Is this an utter mystery? It seems like it's probably not an utter mystery. I mean, there's going to be a number of things, right? So on in one case, there's going to be the case that often the people in power themselves are drawn from elite classes, um, millionaires and the Senate, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one avenue, but it's not, of course, not always the case, um, but disproportionately so, right? Um, it's also going to be the case that the people in positions of political power, if they're not coming from the elite class themselves, are going to be um, funded by people coming from these sort of um, these places. Um, mm-hmm. So there's going to be that kind of um, patronage, sort of roughly a patronage system, right? Um, I will support you to get into office. I will see to it that things are good for you once you're out of office, etc. And then I think there's just a general sort of what you might call like an anticipatory favoritism or something, right? I mean, going back to the sort of cognitive stuff we talked about earlier, a lot of people are inclined to believe that, you know, um, do we bail out Main Street or Wall Street or whatever? A lot of people are inclined to have accepted the thought that like, no, what is in the favor of the elites is going to be in the favor of everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, so to the extent that they've internalized that sort of ideology, essentially, right? To the, to the extent that they've eternal, internalized that, there's going to be some sort of anticipatory thing. So, you know, if the levers, if the, if the, as far as political outcomes go, are being determined by people who are drawn from elite classes and or depend on the patron, if they're not themselves, they depend on the patronage, and they grow up in a culture that also just thinks like, well, what's in the interest of business is largely going to be in the interest of um, mm-hmm. So, you know, these are kind of three mechanisms and we'd have to, you know, look at them in detail, but they, they're, they're pretty rough and ready, but I think they do a, a lot of the uh, explanatory work in a case like this. So the three mechanisms, again, were, first of all, a lot of people in, uh, who, who are in the most powerful sectors of society come from an elite just because having, you know, if you have a lot of money, you want to get something for your money. One of the things you want to get is power or access to power. And so you're going to be willing to pay the price to get it. So that makes a straightforward case. You talked about anticipatory. Um, what, what was the anticipatory thing again? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I would say the three would be, the first would be membership, the one you just mm-hmm. described. People in power are largely drawn from those classes anyways. Um, right. The second one is going to be patronage. If I'm not coming from that class, or even if I am coming from that class, I really, and you're a billionaire, you're really going to um, support me. But the other is just sort of uh, whoever is going into those positions of power is also going to have, it's not going to be just purely like a quid pro quo. In many cases, it kind of seems to be, but it, it doesn't have to be just that. There's something like I can have the view if I'm in a position of power that like in this society, growing up in this culture that says what's good for business is good for everyone. Yeah. If, if I'm, if I, if I've imbibed that I'm thinking like, okay, right. I want to, I want to do the things that are, that benefit this class, not because I'm like favoring them. I'm just, I'm looking out for everyone here. What's in, you know, got to make sure okay. we've got a good functioning economy, that kind of thing. So the ruling class gets what it wants. Let's say that's established. Um, the next question is, do they, what does this have to do with ideology, right? Because one of the things you said earlier, and maybe I'm trying to trap you here. I didn't mean to. But no, I love it. If, if, if I trap you, great. Uh, <laughs> uh, the cultural elite, 
right? People who are responsible for our cultural products, right? Movies, television shows, novels, etc. I could be wrong, and you tell me if I'm wrong, in your opinion, but I think they, broadly speaking, lean left, right? Um, they don't always get what they want, but you're saying that the 1% or the 10% changes people's ideology, and it doesn't do it through culture, or it does do it through culture, or what? Yeah, good. So I think this is one of the trickier parts of this, um, and getting this right is a tricky part, right? So, you know, the the first picture is elite monopolization of political domain, that is, I think, clear, and I think the evidence is clear in some sense, right? I am able to determine who gets into positions of power. I determine which bills get passed. I can determine which bills even come up for a vote, whatever. Once in a while, there's a fringe candidate, but I can assure there's a majority of people who are going to keep his or her bills from reaching the floor, etc. So that's how it works in that case. Now, the question, I mean, this is a little bit of the trickier question. Um, what do we do in the, what do we, how do we think of the case of um, the, the general mainstreaming of ideas? Which, what kind of ideas, what kind of social and political ideas gain currency in a culture at a particular time? This is an interesting question. Whatever, whatever the real answer to this question is, I think it's a really interesting one, right? Um, my hunch is, I mean, my hunch going through this literature and, and the work, but I, again, I think there's a lot more to be said and investigated here. But my hunch is political outcomes matter more for the, for the bottom line, for the direct interests of the economic elites than what Hollywood movies playing at a particular time, et cetera. Or mm-hmm. that there's like, a Marxist, you know, scholar working in, you know, Wisconsin or something like these kind of things, right. Are, um, a a political bill that says, let's take, um, let's take all wealth above $3 million or whatever. And it reinvested into, you know, um, poverty and college and healthcare and things like this, those sort of things will never get a hearing politically. Now the question is, what about, what about cultural ideas? And I think for the most part, I would say, and I think that, you know, this is a, this is consistent with a Marxist view would be a lot of the ideas don't matter. A lot of it, a lot of the things, if it's not going to be a threat to anybody's mm-hmm. status, then it doesn't matter if you're like the movies this year are dinosaur movies or UFO movies or whatever that, that flavor doesn't matter. I mean, there is a sort of a strand in 20th century Marxism that I think is always looking for how the cultural products themselves are, are sort of reinforcing the norms, you know? So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, on one view, it's like, we don't care what Taylor Swift is doing because she doesn't matter to the, she doesn't affect the bottom line. The other view would be like, no, something about Taylor Swift is encouraging us to think about culture in a particular way that's going to sort of reinforce our values. I think there might be a little truth in the latter, Um, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it's, but I don't think it's essential to the Marxist picture. I just think for the Marxist picture, there's, it's not going to matter. Some things are going to reinforce, some things are going to bubble up and be, but what is probably not going to bubble up or, or if I start making films, if I'm a filmmaker and Mm -hmm. my films, the, the upshot of my films is we've got to go get Jeff Bezos and Mm -hmm. um, get that money. 
Um, yeah. If that's really the upshot, then it would be interesting to see what would happen. And if and if the monopolization thesis is right, it should be the case that at the moment that movies or film or music or any of that sort of stuff, that sort of cultural production started to threaten any of that, then we mm-hmm. would expect to see that clamped. So it's a little bit of a counterfactual. We just... I yeah. would say we haven't seen anything that's actually posed any sort of real threat to that yet. So we just don't know. Yet. We, we've seen a guillotine put in uh, put in front of his house or put in front of the Washington Post. I forgot. Oh, There's sorry. some Jeff Bezos guillotine somewhere. But yeah, I, yeah. I don't think anybody's worried or hopeful that they're going to actually behead Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Um, but that said, so let me let me see if I understand the picture a bit better. There, there's... Um, it's not as though you're saying that the reason the cultural products are the way they are is that the ruling class wants them to be. It's rather that when the cultural products are getting to be a certain way, then the ruling class will do things to prevent them from getting a huge hearing. So if there were a movie that was all about having a socialist revolution, it wouldn't get very popular. Or if it started to get popular, you'd see a concerted effort from even MSNBC and uh, maybe maybe not Pacifica Radio, but but even like MSNBC and CNN and uh, The Nation magazine, basically saying, "Hey, hey, hey, uh, this movie's very dangerous. It's 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 you know promoting violence against people and that kind of stuff." Right? Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think it would be something like that. I mean, again, so there's going to be a a spectrum, right? Um, but on one end of the spectrum, you might have the view, and again, this is why I. This is the, I don't mean to be vague. I just think this is like an interesting avenue to research and think. Um, mm-hmm. um, on one end of the spectrum, you might think elites just don't even care about popular culture at all. That's not going to matter. What we're mm-hmm. talking about when we're talking about key social and political ideas is sort of what what does and does not appear on MSNBC and the New York Times and Fox and those kind of things. And you might think like, ah, movies are not going to ever matter. But if movies did start to matter, I think that would be the idea, that you would see a concerted, concerted effort to sort of diminish those or to undermine them. Um, that, mm-hmm. the, for that to be right, for, the, for this part of the thesis to be right, it would, that would have to be the case. Um, again, this is, like a mar- this is a test case, and I think it's important, right? Because it's like, if this, this is sort of a counterfactual claim. If there's real monopolization, it's got to look something like this. Um, but even short of that, I mean, I think it is an interesting fact. I mean, th- you know, a more standard sort of Marxist thought would be just look around us right now. I mean, we don't have to do the counterfactual thinking. That's an interest. That's interesting. I sort of want to do that myself. Mm-hmm. But it's like we don't need to do that. <coughs> Here's an interesting fact. Look at the prevailing ideas that are in circulation right now. Is anything really a threat to the economic status of those at the very top. And it seems like there's very little that really is. I mean, these are slightly weird times, you know, like we have Trump and Bernie Sanders and people that are like a little more outside of the, you know, um, the Overton window. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's interesting to know, you know, maybe, maybe something, maybe there's a weird cleavage or something happening right now, but, but I am skeptical of that too, you know, like, and it does seem that, when you look at the ideas, even the ideas on the left, right, the ideas that really have currency right now, a lot of the ideas that seem the, to be, that, that have the most traction morally, the, the things that are treated as sort of the moral issues of our times. Um, most of those yeah. can be dealt with without 
being a threat to the ruling elites, right? There, there are things that could be taken on. Um, right, like so more racial representation at the New York Times rather than um, making the New York Times owned by the workers. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, no, nobody's exactly. calling for Hannah Nicole Jones to replace Arthur Salzberger. Exactly. Even she isn't. <laughs> although, um, yeah, though it might be in her interest to do so. Um, so, so we're going to try to wrap up soon. But before we do that, I have a couple of questions. So, mm-hmm. like, when I think of class consciousness uh, in the sort of maybe the vulgar Marxist way, I think of um, false consciousness, right? People are believing things that are not in their interest, and the reason they're believing things that are not in their interest is that it's in the interest of the ruling elites for them to believe those things. And you have Thomas Frank, the journalist, wrote that book called What's the Matter with Kansas, mm-hmm. where you have all these people in Kansas voting for Republicans against their own interests. A lot of times this kind of issue brings up questions like, well, how do you know what's in their interests, right? And uh, maybe they really do value social issues a lot more than they value economic issues. And then the other question it brings up for me is like, how often do elites know their own interests, right? How often do the elites think, oh, or I shouldn't say think, because that gives a kind of conspiratorial vibe. Mm-hmm. But how often is it the case that elites functionally are moved towards acting in a certain way because it will protect their interests and it just backfires, right? They're just wrong. Like that didn't work. Um, does that, is that possible? Does it happen? Has it happened? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think you can, you know, you can have richer notions of interest and the richer your notion gets, the more, you know, um, wrinkles there's going to be. But I think there's a pretty, I don't think we need to get that work deep into a notion of interest to see that I think for the most case, right, it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, um, kings made some bad moves sometimes, right? Like people mm-hmm. do make do judge poorly what's in their own immediate welfare. Um, yeah. But typically not, right? And, and, and you don't need a robust notion of like what's really, really, really in your interest. I mean, people know, you know, I mean, when we're talking about interests, we don't mean, I mean, right, it's an open question. I mean, you, you might think if you think like the good life would be the life of, you know, in communism or something right and so that the ruling elites are making terrible they're precisely not choosing what's in their own interest or something right. I, right, that would be a picture but but if we're just talking about immediate sort of welfare interests in a more down-to-earth sense like um pocketbook issues protecting yeah. my place where i stand currently in light of what i care about it seems like people are make reasonable decisions best they can in the yeah. you know Given the now the question, I mean, so the question of elites getting it wrong all the time, I think, is like now that they seem like they they seem like they're pretty good at securing their position in the world and and seeing that it's secured for their children and so forth. Um, the what's the matter with Kansas question is a really interesting one, and I think there I all I, I mean I also think you I do think people are sort of um, I don't think you have to have a, a Deep, again, I think for Marx, it's a little bit consciousness raising. It's not like you have to have it. I need a deep metaphysical view that I need to convince you of, dear Kansas resident, of like what your true interests are. But just sort of going through the facts with you, like here's what the, here's what you're voting on. Here's the thing you're voting on. This is not the thing that you're really 
getting much of. This is the thing that's paid lip service to. Maybe you're being told, you know, you're, you're being moved by sort of, sort of social considerations, social issue considerations. Those don't tend to be the things that are really, you know, getting play in Congress anyways. And so there's a way where you could say, like, even if that's what you wanted, that's not quite what you're getting. And, you know, you, you don't have to go too deep into maybe a slightly more informed interest thing to say, you know, uh, I mean, I think it's the case that most people, I mean, you know, where I grew up is very working class and I think they're susceptible to this sort of thinking. It's like, I don't think they think like, well, I know what's in my economic interest is one thing, but I'm so moved by these other considerations. And I've done the calculations and I've weighed it out and I've decided I'm willing to go there. It's like, no, no, no. They think like, this is the person who's looking out for my economic interests. They're the person who I identify with socially, et cetera. It's usually like a, you know, and it can be mixed and matched, but it's like usually a full menu of items you're voting for. And I think that that's the sort of thing that you can go a long ways by and, and say, like, let's just walk through it. Like, are you getting what you're voting for right now? Um, how is this really, you know, um, how is this really in your interest in a, either that you're aware of or that in a very, very easy to do sort of informed preferences kind of thing? You know, you don't have to go deep to some sort of metaphysical philosophical anthropology or whatever i just need to convince you of some deep it's like no you're not getting you you're not getting what you're voting for but and but this goes i think in in some ways to the thing that you brought up earlier with the bartles thing i think you know the reaction to that is like how dare you say these people are voting against their interests and like don't you think they're making the calculations and know what's in their interest you know that person says that sort of thing right and it's like no, for the reasons you pointed to earlier, the Bartles reasons. Most people have no clue what the people they're voting for are up to or doing or the bills they're in, you know. So, so there's a certain cluelessness. Um, and that just seems to be the empirical fact, right? Um, yeah. So it doesn't, I don't think there's any metaphysically controversial work we need to do or whatever. I think people are in a pretty plausible way voting against their interests. And I think if you could sit down and go go slowly through it like people would be would kind of have to see that in a way yeah so so last thing and then i think we'll finish um you know my 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 general my general worry about your view is just that i'm very skeptical that anybody's good at knowing what their interests are uh over the long term (laughs) like it's really hard to see a year out much less five Mm -hmm. years out or anything like that it doesn't matter how rich you are doesn't matter how well informed you are just it's the future is hard to predict. Um, and so, um, so I don't know how much, how much the, the, the ruling, I mean, you said the ruling class uh, is gets their way uh, when they oppose the, the rest of America. And then the question becomes is when they get their way, does it work out for them? I'd, I'd be curious to do that, but I've always had this question and I don't think it's a question that Marxism raises for me although I don't think Marxism has anything particular to say, it's just a prurient question, which is to what extent do you think the really mega rich, like the Jeff Bezos's types, the Bill Gates types, like are really trying to do, to steer the system in a certain way, to what extent are they trying to get clearer on it? And then maybe even talking to each other and say, Hey, let's, let's do this and that like a literal conspiracy. And I think there are conspiracies of various sorts, like, you know, 9-11 was a conspiracy. Those people really got together in a plane and crashed it together, right? The conspiracies happen. Um, what What do you think, like, do you think that happens? Do you think they have a sense of, they, they have a picture of their interest and talk to each other to try to make it happen? Or is it just all like 
functional, all systemic or almost all. And then that kind of stuff just doesn't happen because it doesn't need to. Yeah. I mean, don't you suspect it's sort of a hybrid that, you know, I do, I do. Yeah. That it's like, you know, I don't think, I don't think you have to think, right. It's like a cabal of secret meetings, although it can be like that. Koch brothers kind of roll that way a little bit. Right. And, you know, so I think there is some sort of, I, I think there, um, you, you know, we're not talking about a huge number of people, but I don't think it's like a cabal, like every Thursday we meet in the park no, no, no. and like hash out what we're up to our agenda for the week or anything like that. Um, so I think it's some sort of combination. I think, you know, I mean, for Marx, I, and I think this is, you know, this is maybe a, a, a way that to think about it. I think for Marx, he thought there were classes that were just um, lumped together in virtue of where they stood vis-a-vis the economic system. Um, then there's another sort of thing, which is class consciousness, which emerges when they recognize like, oh, hey, we're in this kind of situation together. Maybe we should mm-hmm. orient ourselves together. Um, I think there are probably many rich people who don't think about themselves in those terms. Um, yeah. But there are clearly organizations, there are clearly, you know, um, organizations of wealthy people who are thinking like, here's what's in the economic interest of the country or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and that are talking, right? And it doesn't have to be like a cabal style thing, but I think they're, but I think it's like, they're talking, but it, but it's like, um, it's, you know, you, it's also what seems reasonable to one another. They don't have to cook up anything crazy. It's like, what's reasonable is going to, they're going to be sort of in, in it together. I mean, what's good for Goldman mm-hmm. Sachs is going to be what's good for the, the head of Chase, what's going to be what's good for the, you know, Koch brothers, et cetera. And then there'll be some disagreements, of course, intra-family disputes and stuff. Um, so I suspect it's just more like that, you know, like it's not yeah. like a Wednesday meetup or something. Um, right. But there's, you know, the Chamber of Commerce and that kind of thing and the, the things that sort of play out in um, who we're voting in and these these kind of discussions. Um, so I, I suspect that's it. I mean, that, you know, like, does that seem... That yeah, seems I mean, like it is probably... It, if I had $160 billion, right, and I was known by the world to be the richest man in the world, I would feel different from how I feel now, right? My The mind would begin to start working in certain ways, like, what am I going to do with this, right? I can change the world if I want to in, like, important ways. How do I think it should be changed? I think that... I. I mean, I guess that would be how a person would think who had that much money. I mean, it's not how I think, because what's the point? I'm not going to get that much money. But like, once you start thinking along that way, you start thinking, can I bend the country in a certain way, right? And you'd hope they would be more than just how for it to benefit me, to like benefit everybody. But chances are they're going to not think to themselves, people like me shouldn't exist. They're probably not going to think like that. They're probably going to think, um, you know, and to the extent that there are groups of people who say people like you shouldn't exist, they're probably going to, if it starts to get large enough to be worrisome, then they're going to start saying, Hey, pump the brakes here a bit. Let me try to do something about this. Now, how, if it gets big enough to be worrisome, I don't know how successful they'll be at that, but you, you have some provided some evidence that if it's to be believed means they'll probably be pretty successful. And maybe that's due to a lot of people's belief that this is a just world, like getting rid of billionaires seems pretty unjust, right? Maybe they did some really good stuff. I think Steve Jobs did a lot of really good stuff, personally. I mean, I don't think he was a great guy, but I think his products have brought a lot of happiness and, and unhappiness, but a lot of happiness in the world. And so, um, you know, 
I don't know that Steve Jobs is a policy failure or Jeff Bezos, maybe, maybe the, the, the heirs to the wall, Walmart fortune, but you know, anyway, anyway, I, I feel like there's a book to be written there. The, the secret history of the ruling elite. Um, but anyway, all right. Thank you very much, Jamie. It was very oh, yeah, fun talking pleasure. to you. And uh, I will, I was going to say, I'll see you on the flippity flop as though that's going to be my catchphrase, but I don't, I think I'll work on it. I'll work on it. I'll see you later. Great. Thanks. See you later. Thanks. Bye.